Hello, and welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and mental health. I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I are joined by Dr. Paul Thielking, MD. Paul is a psychiatrist, Zen practitioner, and the chief scientific officer at Novamind. In this episode, we discuss the very important topic of healthcare provider burnout. Being a healthcare provider can be very rewarding, but it's also a profession that can take a toll on a person. This has never been more the case than during the COVID-19 pandemic. We hope that this discussion is validating, enlightening, and useful as you tackle and try to prevent and or address burnout in yourself or in the people you care for. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. Uh, today, Dr. Reed Robison and I are joined by our very own Dr. Paul Thilking. Paul, you want to introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, sure, and thanks for having me today. Um, I've heard a lot of great things about your podcast, so we I are, am... We are the best. <laughs> Psychedelic-oriented podcast. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm Paul Thilking. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm also a palliative care physician, I joined Novamine just a couple months ago, um, came on board as the chief scientific officer. Uh, I, prior to that, was at the University of Utah, worked at the Huntsman Cancer Institute for about 10 years. Um, and prior to that, uh, I did a variety of things, including starting a private practice right after I got out of residency. Um, I have a lot of interest in burnout. I've been leading burnout workshops, classes, retreats for several years now, mainly for healthcare uh, specialists. Um, And a a lot of my interest in burnout actually is based on my own personal experiences with burnout. You know, I think looking back, I've probably been burned out pretty seriously about three times over the course of my career. So that's um, I think that's where my interest started and have found some ways to get involved in, um, yeah, working with people and kind of sharing what I've learned, you know, through a lot of my own experiences. I'm glad you're here, Paul, because I think this topic, this burnout among healthcare providers is really important, no more important, uh, especially now with the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic that is placed on frontline healthcare workers. Um, And so I'm excited to get into some of our own personal experiences with burnout and maybe offer our listeners, uh, whether you be clinicians, guides, therapists, or just interested enthusiasts, um, some some guidance, some tips on how to navigate burnout. Um, But maybe we should begin with what is burnout? How might we define burnout? How is it different than, you know, depression or trauma or something like that? I saw this flow chart recently that was really interesting because it had uh, at the top professional satisfaction and then under it it branched into two categories compassion satisfaction compassion fatigue and then in the compassion fatigue department you had these two branches one being burnout and one being like secondary trauma vicarious trauma or severe stress and I thought that was an interesting framework to place it in this overall quality of professional life uh, diagram Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I like that I um, you know I think there are some technical ways to talk about burnout like um, like in one of the main ways we measure burnout it's the Moslog burnout inventory it Mm -hmm. breaks it down into emotional exhaustion which is just a feeling like being really depleted and having nothing else to give. And then depersonalization, which is um, just feeling disconnected, you know, from the work we're doing, kind of like you're going through the motions. And then the third one is a sense of a lack of personal accomplishment. So that's like the feeling triad. like you're yeah, like a cog in the machine, right? Like what you're doing isn't making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um and um, and then there are these related terms like mm-hmm. compassion fatigue, vicarious or secondary trauma, um, moral distress is another kind of related term. Like if you're having to do things or you know that you just don't feel comfortable with, but you're kind of 
pressure to do because of your role, like on a healthcare team, for example. So yeah. there's this whole, uh, yeah, spectrum, right, of, of symptoms and ways that this can present. And these are all like kind of overlapping with one another. The moral distress one's an interesting one. Uh, I've been thinking about that lately with the pandemic because sometimes it's called moral injury or some other terms, but um, what you described encompasses it. But a part of that is like if you only have so many beds in the ICU or so many ventilators and you have to triage or decide, that's extremely difficult. And what toll does that take on your, your psyche, your soul, your emotional exhaustion? Yeah. Or if you're, you know, you're, um, you know, a physician or a nurse and you're coming into work and you've got, you know, a family member that's immunocompromised at home or something like that. I mean, that can be a real sense of moral dist- or yeah. source of moral distress, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Having to having to make those sorts of decisions. Yeah. yeah. yeah especially when things are outside of your control. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have this sort of insurmountable like with the pandemic, for example, you have this uh, uncontrollable, uncontrollable, seemingly insurmountable problem in front of you. And you got into healthcare because you wanted to help people solve really, really difficult health challenges, whether they be physical or mental health challenges. And so you go to your job and, you know, connected to these these um, different variables within burnout, like the two of you have outlined, you uh, either don't feel like you have the resources to meet the demands that, you know, are part of your job description or you're even being thwarted by bad organization, bad leadership, um, bad government, whatever it is, um, or you've lost connection. That's the one that really intrigues me, the loss of connection to the reason why you're doing the work. It seems to me that, that I mean, all these things, all these different variables that um, we're talking about here, are really difficult to cope with. But it seems to me like the loss of, of connection, because if I have a really strong connection to purpose, like, and I feel like what I'm doing is efficacious, and I'm actually making a difference, then I can handle a lot. You know, I can handle long days. I can handle difficult decisions. But those seem like big levers. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think... Um like you point out, like there's so many different variables, right? And different things, like stressors, right? Pressures. But if you lose that sense of meaning, that sense of purpose, like in what you're doing, um, that makes it really hard, mm-hmm. you know, to show up. And, and you know, a lot of us in healthcare, like what we're, we do jobs that are difficult, you know, and that are stressful. That just goes with the territory. But if you don't have that sense of purpose, meaning like what you're doing is important or makes a difference. It's, it's hard to show up, you know, and do, do what you're there to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that connection, not just to the purpose, but to other people or the presence of supportive others in the process, I think is a huge factor mm-hmm. of if you feel alone in it, you're much more likely to get, to feel overwhelmed, to get mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted versus having those key connections. I mean, we talk about this in mental health a lot where depression, addiction even are uh, often conditions of disconnection and where the antidote being that connectedness. Yeah. And then you add into that that, you know, the healthcare system like has isn't known for being the most supportive, nurturing, you know, kind of system, uh, then, you know, there's a lot of, um, um, I don't know, like fear or hesitation about like opening up if you are having a hard time or sharing that, right? Like people don't um, necessarily want to put themselves in that vulnerable position. I think one of the most powerful things about a lot of the workshops I've led is is just people showing up and realizing like wow I'm not the only one that like feels this way you know and and uh and I think it is often an isolating thing if you feel like you're you're overwhelmed or you're not you know able to kind of do do what you're what you're there to do and you feel like you're alone in that that really takes a toll on people 
That's powerful, that realization. I am not alone in this. Um, and that can take away a big chunk of the distress right there, or add so much add so much uh, fuel to the to the you know resilience effort um, yeah. and and that's part of what fueled that's part of what uh, we put together in this frontline cap this frontline healthcare worker group ketamine uh, assisted psychotherapy project we're doing is getting people together in a cohort um, because of the healing power of the social connections and the group as well it's one of the things I love most about group therapy generally is uh, it's it's that insight that I'm not alone. And, you know, when we teach new, new therapists how to do therapy, one of the one of the early skills we teach them is normalizing. You know, it's it's validating listening, but then normalizing not to say that like, oh, yeah, well, what you're going through is everybody experiences that we're not minimizing yeah. by normalizing. We're saying you're not alone. You know, this thing that you're experiencing is not 100% unique to you. You're not in isolation with your burnout or your depression or your anxiety. There's still the other factor that Paul brought up that has struck me, especially during the pandemic, is how many people are afraid to access mental health support, especially in the healthcare profession, because of fear of it negatively impacting their employment. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and even though the stigma does seem to be reducing in mental health, it's still uh, a, pr- a significant factor and a big obstacle we have to overcome in uh, helping people access the support they need. Yeah, you know, you see that to varying degrees in different, um, I think, kinds of work. I, what shocks me is when you see it among mental health professionals themselves. Yeah. Like mental health professionals who don't want to go seek therapy or, or maybe get on some medication because they're worried about the stigma of of what was described to me once as an out-of-shape personal trainer, right? Like, if you go to the gym and you hire a personal trainer, are you going to hire the person who looks very out of shape? Um, Well, probably not, right? You want the person that looks like they're in complete physical, you know, peak physical condition because the assumption is that person's going to know how to get me me fit. Um, I think it's kind of a poor metaphor for, you know, the wounded healer. Yeah, it is. But And you can see how... It's a sign of strength as well. Um, it's hard to get there personally. I think we can all relate. But but if if we do share that we're doing our own work and in our own therapy, that can be so so helpful for colleagues and clients. Yeah. So just to put it out there as an example, listeners of the podcast, I have seen personally probably seven different therapists in my life, <laughs> starting in college. Yeah. Part of it was I wanted to get a sampling of, you know, different therapeutic approaches as a client of those therapeutic approaches. Um, But also I've just needed different kinds of help throughout my life and uh, was never with any one therapist for really, you know, an extended period of time, like some people are with their their psychodynamic therapist they're with for 30 years or whatever. But um, yeah, I I actually really enjoy talking about uh, my, my own struggles and efforts to improve and maintain my mental health uh, for the reason of reducing reducing the stigma. Yeah, that was introduced to me as well during residency training at the University of Utah when the program was like, okay, now here's your 12 months of free therapy that we highly encourage that you all do because you need to know what it feels like. Then you get into that and a light bulb goes off. You're like, wow, this is, this is actually really important for my, um, my healing work and my preventative maintenance and my growth and my ability to help others. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was fortunate to be in same training program and had that same opportunity and took advantage of it when I was in residency. And, um, you know, I just really, I'm a strong believer in the idea that to really be a good therapist like you have to have done that personal work yourself and I think when you talk about burnout I I think there's something similar there and that's around like self-awareness or self um, yeah self-awareness you know knowing what your stressors are knowing what your underlying um, issues are you know we all came into being healthcare providers for various reasons, right? And the more insight you have into why you're there, 
doing what you're doing, why you want to help people, um, and the more aware you are of your um, underlying like vulnerabilities and, and um, self-care needs, you know, the more you can uh, protect yourself or prevent from getting into a place like burnout. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah. for mental health professionals, you know, part, one of our instruments, right, medical professionals have different instruments. You might have a tongue depressor or a stethoscope. One of our instruments is our heart, our own nervous system. And mm-hmm. I think like Paul's saying, the more aware we are of the way it functions, the more conscious we can be of our own countertransference, um, of our own reactions to our clients, then the more effective we can be. The more we can divide our own BS and leave it outside the therapy room so that it doesn't affect our clients, um, and then use this finely tuned instrument of our own heart and nervous system to be of service to the person sitting in the chair across from us. But if we don't, as Paul said, do our own work, then we have an out-of-tune instrument. And it will be harmful to us and could potentially be harmful to our clients. I like that. I I do see self-awareness as like the first step in burnout prevention and addressing it. And if if we're not able to uh, fully be self-aware because of, uh, you know, the workload, the stress, uh, where we are in our journey then no problem. We rely on others to help us. We open up and um, and help each other identify those things. And, you know, for me, it can be physical or mental, emotional. It can be a, an irritability or starting to feel like dreading going to work is a big warning sign or mm-hmm. tension in muscles might be another one. Um, or sleep difficulties. Uh, there's a long list and unique to every individual, but I think that's the first pass of the process is this continual self-awareness. And that compassion fatigue variable is really important to pay attention to. You know, it's uh, like the term implies, you your ability to feel empathy and have compassion for people uh, starts to diminish. And you find yourself, like Reed said, dreading your next appointment or hearing something that should evoke some kind of emotion in you and you're kind of dead inside. You know, like I said, that instrument is not functioning correctly because uh, you've, you know, either blown it out or all these other you know factors that contribute to burnout like we've talked about. I remember at one point in my career, I was seeing a lot of therapy clients, probably 40 a week. And, um, you know, for most therapists, most therapists would say that that's a lot. And it was. Yeah. And, and then it becoming too much. And I got to a point where I was really burned out. I was doing everything I could, at least I felt I was, to give good therapy to my clients. But I knew in the back of my mind that I wasn't at my best. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do to bolster yourself so that you are as equal to the task as you can be. But sometimes the task is too hard. And in that case, uh, at least in this case in particular, I eventually decided to change my career trajectory. And uh, that was the biggest thing to help me reconnect purpose and um, sort of resolve the burnout I was experiencing at the time. It took a big change though. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I can relate to that. I think the times I've been burned out, it's, it's literally taken like a job change to pull me out of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it is worth making a distinction between compassion fatigue and burnout because compassion fatigue, I mean, it's similar, that sense of being emotionally exhausted or, you know, just kind of overwhelmed. Um, But it just goes with the territory. Like it's a normal response to being immersed, like in the suffering of others, right. Or, or working with people who are really suffering. Like we're going to have days, no matter what our role is, where we're just, get exhausted and we just hit our limit and we just don't have anything else to give. And that, that just goes with the territory. It's normal and it passes, you know, we get a good night of sleep or we have a weekend, we come back in we feel refreshed and we're sort of ready to go. But if you start getting into burnout, like Reed, you were talking about this sense of dread. I can relate to that, like mm-hmm. waking up on Monday morning and just having like a sense of dread about even starting the work week like that's a different situation and that doesn't go away like with a with a nice weekend or even a vacation right Mm -hmm. and um when you get into that zone that burnout zone it's really hard to pull out of and oftentimes 
it does take a big change. Or, I mean, I know people that have left the field of medicine because they got into that burnout zone and they just, you know, couldn't couldn't turn it around. It's a good distinction. It's, it's all too common in healthcare. I think I saw that across the board, pandemic or not, greater greater than fifty percent of healthcare workers experience significant burnout. And it's if you look at the ICU, that gets even higher. You look at the pediatric ICU, seventy percent mm-hmm. among like physicians working in that setting. Um, and I like to sometimes try and break things down mathematically or look at them that way. And both of your examples um, remind me of this equation for burnout of if the time spent working and draining yourself is greater than the time you have to recover, that equals burnout. And uh, it seems like even if you have a weekend or a vacation, like you were saying, if that doesn't pull you back, there's something out of balance in your in your work life balance yeah it's emotional deficit spending you know mm-hmm. you're, you're you're depleting and you're not replenishing at a fast enough rate to keep up yeah and you can keep going for a while you know like you can kind of get into survival mode and show up and go through the motions and do your job running on fumes you can yeah. you can do that for a long time like I've, med I've done school, it. med school conditions <laughs> you to do so right i mean like the, yeah. the, the oh, two yeah. physicians here with me like you folks are are trained and tempered through a refiner's fire to work hard when you probably should be resting. Yeah, we we learned by staying up every fourth night and working during certain rotations, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you get really good at pulling an all nighter, but you know what's going on underneath the hood over time mm-hmm. if you're not really replenishing or keeping up with your self care. Yeah. I think I was sleep deprived for like 20 years and I didn't recognize it because it felt normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you forget, you forget like what it feels like to zombie. feel rested. Yeah. yeah. To feel truly alive. Yeah. Um, you know, there's another distinction we should probably make between compassion fatigue and just emotional boundaries. Uh, I think to be in the healthcare profession, you probably can't be effective and at the same time um, be completely overcome with emotion every time you hear a sad story. So uh, I think it's important for us to compartmentalize in a healthy way, create some emotional boundaries so that we can be available, emotionally available for our clients without getting wrecked by what they're sharing with us. So, Yeah, I think that's so important. I think it's tricky, too, to find that balance because I've, I've, I can see just looking back over my own career, I've kind of gone from one extreme to another at times, you know, going from just being too open and, and too maybe immersed in what, what another person's kind of going through and taking too much of that on myself, you know, that's not really mine to, to take on. And then at the other end of the spectrum, just becoming numb or walled off as a self-protective thing. And, and neither one of those works very well. In fact, I think they're both pathways to burn out, even though they're on other ends, opposite ends of the spectrum. So finding that way of really being present with people and being open, you know, and, and to really be able to be, um, um, empathic and, and be there with people in their suffering without it, without taking it on and being overwhelmed by it. I think that's, uh, that's the challenge that I see a lot of us, especially, um, you know, if you're a therapist, counselor, and are talking to people about about like deep emotional right. pain. You know, it's it's hard. It's so, hard to find that balance. So, Paul, I have a question for you on that. As a, because you're a Zen practitioner too, I'm really interested in the ways of cultivating that, like open heartedness, without letting it engulf you and lead to that exhaustion so like what's that like for you how do you cultivate that uh ability or that sweet spot yeah well that's a good question and i think um just reflecting on that you know i'm not sure being a longtime med meditator longtime zen practitioner um I'm not sure if that necessarily teaches you like the right 
like the um, right way to go about this because it's easy and I've met a lot of long-term meditation people who who can sit for hours or days on their cushion and are, are maybe quite um, accomplished or have a sense of like peace or equanimity but they're really distanced from their own like underlying yeah. emotional life it's like that spiritual bypassing yeah. um, phenomena that you're probably familiar with right like mm-hmm. it's you can kind of escape into that um, that kind of place right through meditation um, and I think I actually did that for a long time when I first started being a therapist um, I, I was there with people and but almost in a detached kind of way where I could sit there and listen to mm-hmm the most horrible like you know disturbing experiences and stories without it really touching me like it in in a way right and so I um like so I had to learn through my own process I guess to be more in touch with um that emotional part of myself while in the presence of others like and being kind of open and vulnerable myself and and now looking back i can see where the two kind of go like they kind of go hand in hand in terms of um having helped me find a place of balance right like that meditation Mm -hmm. foundation has been helpful but it's paired with being more in touch with my own heart let's say and being like really open with people like while i'm there like you know working with people in a session for example I like that because it, it would be easy or it's a risk uh, for all of us to focus too much, say, on the equanimity piece and not as much on the heart connectedness. Or I like this concept yeah. of, of uh, an overall mindfulness uh, approach as a three-legged stool where you have this like sensory clarity. You, you know, you train your attention, right? Then you have your sensory clarity or open-heartedness. Um, and if you don't have any equanimity, all that's so overwhelming. It's just too much, the suffering. If, if you're focusing all on equanimity and not connecting to your heart, then you're detached, perhaps. Or you can easily slip into that, um, that place of equanimity but not staying connected to the, you know, the emotional suffering as, as much. Yeah, and I think also that you need to strike the balance between your practice and then um, using the skills in the real world. Like yeah. I, I think of an uh, like when in high school I played football, and there were guys who were great in the gym, who were great at the drills, and sucked on the field. They were yeah. the, they were some of the strongest athletes we had, and they were some of the the best at like our skills drills. But when it came to actually playing the game, which required creativity, which required inventiveness which required responding to the the trials that were in front of you in real time some of those guys sucked so i think you know from a mindfulness meditation perspective the practice is invaluable you have to build the skills um and you know these connections that you're talking about with your three-legged stool uh analogy read um but you can't rely on simply those to um to navigate all the the difficulties that come your way in mm-hmm. real time. You've got to practice in the gaps, as they say, or go into the line at the grocery store and practice your meditation there. Mm. You know, if you're in a hurry or in a traffic jam is another good place. But um, your example reminds me of this, of the athletes. It reminds me of this movement teacher I like. His name's... Ito Portal, but he talks yeah, about how um, you can get big muscles by going to the gym, but he'll go into the gym and say, but bro, can you even do a flip? Right. You know, can you apply <laughs> that into these functional challenges? Right. Nice muscles. What can you do with them? Yeah. 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 But what came up for me listening to that is um, like when I used to, when I was first getting more serious about meditation practice and I would go do a retreat and um, back in those days, like some of them were silent retreats. So I might go and do a silent retreat for a week and really get into a, a deep space, you know, kind of a meditative, spacious like state. 
but it was really hard like coming back into the world like i it, it was overwhelming <laughs> like i remember yeah. once coming back and just getting into the to the taxi right to go back to the airport and the the guy had the radio blaring and he had just been like smoking a cigarette so it was smoke and it was just like it was just like um too much yeah and, and so i start when i started finally kind of gravitated towards the teacher and group i finally ended up with um they didn't do silent retreats and that really bothered me for a while but it really like i kind of got it after i helped it helped with that process of kind of um, integrating, you know, or or, ha- or being in the real world and at, at the same time, you know, yeah, kind of inhabiting that, that sort of space. Yeah, like Ram Das talks about being form and formless at the same time and yeah. uh, being able to occupy both of those places. Because he said once he, he went to... Uh, India and on his spiritual path and got immersed in the in the meditative practices coming back um, he almost didn't care if he was eating the most bland meal of just noodles or the fanciest spaghetti with all the seasonings and and extras but then he he realized that uh, there was a place where he could do both like enjoy the moment uh, and the senses the real world and still be in that place of equanimity where you're not attached to you're not uh you know spiraling down into despair because of attachment to one or the other so you can flow with it either way yeah yeah and a couple things that come up i mean i, I think there's a distinction between um this might be getting too much into like Zen, but how dare you get too much into Zen? There's a, <laughs> there's a distinction between detachment, right? Which was what we were kind of talking about earlier, where you're really disconnected and, and non-attachment. So being yeah. immersed in something, being connected, but not like attached, you know, in the way that maybe we yeah. habitually can be. Um, and it all, it all also ties back, I think to, something Reed you brought up earlier which is resilience right a lot of this is about cultivating resilience right and so that we can be in the in the midst of like a really stressful situation or job or a pandemic and it and we were somehow able to get through it you know mm-hmm. in, in a way that's kind of balanced and healthy um, a lot of that's about resilience you know, mm-hmm. I, I started my career as a psychologist in the Air Force. I was uh, Captain Dr. Steve Thayer for the, the first four years of cool. my career. And um, I loved a lot of things about being in the military. I got out of the military because it just a long-term career didn't make sense to me. For one of, one of the reasons it didn't, and it's connected to this word resilience. You know, when I was in the military at the time, um, the, the top brass wanted our airmen, soldiers, sailors, marines, to be resilient. And... I agreed, I, you know, more resilience, the better. But um, part of the problem was what they were being asked to do was probably more difficult than any human being. Any, it was something more difficult than any human being should be asked to do. War fighting is horrifying. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they would come to the psychologists on the payroll and say, hey, we're going to, we're basically going to keep punching our airmen in the face repeatedly. Can you do something about their faces breaking? Because it's really annoying to us. We want them to have indestructible faces. And I just got so frustrated. Talk about burnout. I was definitely burned out by the end of my service. Um, so, you know, the resilience building, absolutely key and crucial to our uh, to navigating the work that we do. But some things are just too hard, and it's okay to, to quit. It's okay to oh, change yeah. your trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, j- mindfulness or meditation practice is a way of really enhancing resilience and there's a lot of other things we can do whether it's exercise or getting enough sleep or other lifestyle things that can make us more resilient having connections communication but if you're if you're in a toxic work environment Mm -hmm. if you're in a situation where you're just being asked to do things that are um yeah that aren't possible or that are just really traumatic uh, it doesn't matter how many of these 
self-care tools we might have in our toolkit you know it's just not it's not necessarily going to over um override all that yeah that gets into that moral injury uh category we were talking about yeah but sleep's a good example too of the resilience because uh well in babies and kids and grown-ups for that matter it becomes really evident you sleep less you become ornery like i think we can all become like irritable if we're sleep deprived you know or, or if you miss sleep entirely for one night that gets really amplified um but there are so many different areas like that that are more subtle that i think we could tune into yeah i've heard the halt acronym like if if you're feeling an intense emotion halt am i hungry angry lonely or tired and address those four things before you do anything drastic. Bottom of the pyramid stuff. Yeah. 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 But those things are really essential, you know, and those foundational things. If you're not taking care of those things, it, it might not matter what else you try to layer on yeah. top of that, you know, it's not going to it's not going to work. Sleep is huge too. I mean, like you're saying, I I've noticed that personally, but definitely in, in my clients' lives, that if if sleep is, this is why I'm just amazed by physicians. I don't know how you guys do it. Uh, when in grad school or the surgeons out there, or the ER docs or whatever, or the shift workers or just people who aren't sleeping, freaking find a way to sleep. It, it It's a huge lever. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Michael Pollan's most recent book. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but his... Uh, uh, the nature of drugs is that what it's called his most recent one yeah. but he has three sections one's on uh, opium one's on caffeine and one's on mescaline but the caffeine section is really interesting because he talks about some of the history of caffeine of how when caffeine showed up to our civilization uh, it created this drastic leap in all of a sudden you can have shift workers working all night in a hospital and uh, pulling all-nighters, and it brought about this healthcare advancement. But that can also take its toll on our, uh, in other ways, over time. You know, so there, there are a lot of factors like that. I know personally, I didn't discover caffeine until it was after med school. Like really? I grew up in a home without caffeine, um, and even in med school, I'm just, you know, I had, I didn't realize what it did for you. I mean, I of course know what caffeine is. I just didn't have a habit, but then, uh, perhaps out of necessity as I'm sitting there in one of these rotations where you're staying up every fourth night and I'm typing my notes, falling asleep. I remember like falling asleep on the key and there's this like Z, like string of 20 Z's or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, uh, and then like startling myself awake, um, and thinking, wow, this, uh, this is hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, c- caffeine does what? Like suppresses adenosine production and that does all these things in the brain to make you not feel tired, but it's not the same as wakefulness, right? Yeah. It's not the same as a well-rested brain. There's some things that that your brain needs to go through during those sleep stages that we rob it of when we don't sleep well. Yeah, there aren't really shortcuts to self-care and building resilience and um preventing burnout you can temporarily like paul was saying Mm -hmm. and run on fumes for a while but um yeah i think i read a a quote recently that really uh was a wake-up call to me because i've honed that ability to operate on less sleep for long periods of time if needed but it was like the number the percentage of people uh who can survive and thrive forever on five hours of sleep you know uh, is essentially zero. <laughs> you know, it'll come back to bite you. If if health isn't your number one priority today, it will be one day. Right. Guaranteed. Yeah, foundation of good physical and mental health um, makes you more resilient, right, Paul? And then uh, you're less, maybe less likely to get burned out. Um, I want to hop back to non-attachment. This is a concept that really fascinates me. It's a concept that has been really difficult for me to like really <laughs> understand and therefore difficult for me to, to communicate to my clients. So I'm trying to teach the, you know, the principles of mindfulness um, and mindfulness meditation. Cause it's very different than maybe like a, a really 
strong cognitive behavioral therapy approach where you might say you need to develop awareness around your around your cognitive distortions and then basically argue rationally with those distortions so that you can be a more rational thinker you know this non-attachment idea is a little squishier it, it feels very foreign i think to a sort of a western mind that's super rational and, and doesn't necessarily is my westernly trained mind doesn't necessarily understand how I how letting go of my attachment to desire for peace would bring me peace like that seems weird so I just would like mm-hmm. to pull the two experts here in the room <laughs> the yogi and the Zen master like non attachment how do you explain that to somebody it's a big ask <laughs> you should have prepped us you I know that that's question. a big one you have to yeah. summon Ram Dass uh, and I I can take a stab at it but Reed why don't you go first it looked like you were going to say something. Now, what comes to mind for me is this, uh, just our breath as a metaphor of every inhale, we're taking in that life force and every exhale, we're letting go. And uh, the same thing with uh, how do you hold, you know, the suffering and still feel the joy at the same time? And it's a constant process of, uh, you know, kind of bringing it all in and releasing, letting go. And I like to just, for me personally, remember the breath. You know, the breath is not only my uh, nervous system's remote control, but it's also my, uh, you know, the number one way I look into my own nervous system and see, you know, how settled or unsettled it may be. Um, and then you can get into the, like, where, why, or where does that come from? But but uh, just the chance to let something go um, that we have every moment is really powerful for me um, in a non-attachment framework. So to give Paul more time, that reminded me, um, one of the things that's helping me understand it is the idea of of non-identification. So, you know, instead of saying, I'm angry, I say in my mind, there is anger. Or, you know, I'm stressed. Ah, there is stress. Anger and stress are one of these phenomenons that occur in the contents of human consciousness and I don't have to to uh, merge my sense of self my identity who I am with these with the weather patterns of human consciousness it's just something that occurs and I can choose hopefully to varying degrees of success how much I want to really attach to that feeling or that belief because especially the beliefs right the thoughts could very much just be conditioned whose thoughts are they are they my dad's are they my dissertation chairs? Are they one of the Kardashians? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how have I been influenced by the people around me? So it's, I guess, one of the ways that awareness ties into non-attachment uh, through this lens of um, non-identification with what shows up in consciousness. Yeah. Anyway, I'm a neophyte. I'm just kind of thinking out loud about this. And uh, the word attachment, if you look at it from a clinical standpoint or in the psychological research over the past 20 years or so, adult attachment has become more and more relevant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think many people have heard of uh, this spectrum of, of you know, insecure attachment, healthy attachment, and then, you know, avoidant. Right, disorganized. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it does uh, feel somewhat similar to what we're talking about, where if you're... Um, if you're really anxiously attached, you might be calling your your partner doesn't respond to a text. You you pick up the phone, you can't think of anything else. You're freaking out. You're calling them, and might even be pushing them away in the process. Versus uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you're avoidantly attached. Uh, you might be like, you know, at the first sign of that, you're disconnected, stonewall, stonewalling, running the other way. But there is that place that middle path, that place in the middle of, uh, like, being open, like staying connected, but not getting caught up and engulfed in it. And uh, I see that as that that place of equanimity, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and <clears throat> I guess while, while the two of you have been talking about this a little bit, one, what comes up for me is kind of back to what you were describing Steve which is coming from a place where you're aware of 
your attachments or you're aware of what's going on mentally or emotionally, right, within yourself. So there's this awareness that you have, right? And um, and there's all these other elements of your experience that you're normally identified with, like your thoughts or your feelings or whatever, right? right? So where are you coming from when you're in that, like where, what is that part of you that's aware, you know, or who's that? Right. Who's aware of you, right? And what's going on within you? Yeah, those have been the trippiest meditations and, that I've done. It's like trying, yeah. to, trying to look at the looker, like, okay, yeah. so, where are you pursuing fr- from? And turn yeah. awareness around to that place. Yeah. And then who are... So let's say we all have access to that, the looker, right, mm-hmm. or the awareness, right? But what are you more identified with, that or this, you know, this body, these feelings, this mind, you know, the, mm-hmm. the concepts we have? Like, what are you identified with, right? Mm-hmm. And I think um, accessing that awareness, let's say, that more spacious sort of awareness and even maybe identifying that, wow, that's, that's me too, or that's me, right? That, that spacious awareness, it's not just limited to this body-mind here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's part of it, maybe non, you know, getting to a place of non-attachment. Like, yeah, I, I have, I love my kids, right? I love my dogs right if if my dog died like i'd be crushed you know yeah. Yeah. be heartbroken but at the same time like that spacious awareness that's like our essence right that's like really more truly like who we are mm-hmm. and it's not just limited to like our you know this sort of embodied human experience so that's that's a that's some of what comes up for me thinking about non-attachment yeah i like that a lot so that that might be the path towards this kind of non-attachment we're talking about of slipping into that loving awareness place and it's really neat to see um, tying it into compassion uh, fatigue versus like empathy and compassion satisfaction Uh, it reminds me of the Tibetan loving kindness meditation approach or, or meta, you know, where you're meditating uh, surrounding yourself in love and surrounding your loved ones and people close to you in love and then taking it to even people you don't like, you know, sending them love or, or surrounding uh, everyone, all living things with loving awareness um, in that practice is really a, a powerful um, space to try and access. Yeah. I was trying to teach my kids the meta meditation and I says, imagine you're a care bear and you're, <laughs> and you're sending that beam of rainbow love from your care bear tummy, uh, out to your brother and now out to your neighbors and now pick somebody you don't like very much. And my son just starts laughing. He's like, no, I'm not uh-huh. do that. No, 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 go ahead. And just Care Bear stare the crap out of that guy. Just, you know, send all your, your compassion, but not empathy. Like I've heard people make the, distinguish, the uh, distinction between empathy versus compassion. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to take on what they feel. We're trying to show them that we care. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You should... Uh... You should dish that out at one of our retreats or record a meditation. <laughs> the Care Bear uh, Stare. Yeah, love. the Care Bear Stare version. Yeah. But I think it I think it is relevant to the whole burnout discussion because a lot of a lot of the healthcare professionals I see are just really coming from this sense that they need to like do something, right? They need to fix like whoever they're there to help, they need to like fix their problem or do something. <laughs> That's kind of how we're conditioned. And, and yeah. that's really important, right? Especially like if you're in an emergency room and somebody comes in and they need like to be intubated or something like, yeah, you yeah. need to do something. But for, for those of us that are maybe doing more like therapy, you know, for as our profession, um, yeah, there might be skills we apply or things we need to do to help. But there is something about just the quality of like 
really being there and kind of in the way you're the two of you are talking about right with that loving kindness attitude or that and, and it's more about just the quality of the presence that we bring to the situation and that that alone is really powerful you know and in fact might be more valuable than any problem solving or any like technical like you know thing we we do to help that other person yeah it's the term holding space you hear that a Mm -hmm. lot um so much it almost is nauseating but uh i think that's what we mean when we say that we're really that's what we mean when we say we're holding space is it's it's a loving space where we don't have to take all their burdens on ourselves we can just create a container within which it's okay to feel those things yeah and i mean you hear that all the time with psychedelic medicine right psychedelic assisted therapy a lot of it's just about being there right holding space being with that person in an unconditional supportive sort of loving you know way and there's not much we have to like do right like it's not like whatever that person's going through right Mm -hmm. that's on an ayahuasca retreat or getting ketamine like that's their that's their journey that's their work to do right we don't have to do that for them but just being present in that non-attached you know way is really um can be really profound and really important like as part of their healing process like it's really valuable it's not complicated to it's one of the most uh important ingredients in psychedelic therapy it seems that compassionate abiding that witnessing and holding space with love and compassion uh so it's not complicated but it's also one of the most difficult things to cultivate yeah i think in a way it's it's like the most advanced like yeah. um um sort of like stage skill. we can get yeah. to as a therapist right is like getting to that like trusting that that's really enough you know like mm-hmm. that is really hard to get to that level where you trust that and just really let it be you know let let whatever's happening sort of unfold you know and trust that it's that's the that that's all you need to do is be be there be present mm-hmm. yeah and know that uh, sometimes things are out of your control like mm-hmm. sometimes there are only so many beds in the ICU or um, sometimes you know you can't save everyone or fix everything that comes your way and it's okay that place of non-attachment with compassion uh, is one of the ingredients for this uh, burnout prevention yeah. I think and if you can't save that person's life fix their you know attachment issues like it it doesn't mean you don't have anything to offer right because that's the trap i think a lot of people fall into is if they can't fix it or solve the problem they feel like a failure or like they don't have anything to offer and it's just not the case yeah i'm glad you brought that up paul because that's i think a fast fast track to burnout a lot of what brings people to the healthcare professions, especially mental health care, is a desire to to help, to solve problems. And sometimes, for some of us, that comes from our own attachment issues. And so we have these, these sort of uh, chronic helpers who flood the profession and just mm-hmm. need for that. This is a plug for self-awareness, right? Need for their clients to get better in order for them to feel okay about their work. And get better has to look like a certain thing, right? It has to look like symptom reduction. It has to look like recovery. It has to look like healing. Um, but sometimes that's not what we're there for and not the best thing we can do for that person. Sometimes, as you're saying, it's witnessing. It's holding space. It's uh, just listening. Just listening. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't have someone in their life who just will listening. just listen. Yeah. yeah. I had to learn that early on in this profession you know, early in my psychiatry career, that if my identity was attached to um, fixing everyone and everything that came through or 100% positive, successful outcomes, then I was in big trouble. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that also there was a lot more I could offer by that compassionate presence and being 
there um, to receive this suffering, you know, in the best way I could. And uh, seeing what that could offer was pretty powerful. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, it's sometimes we do have to respond, right? And sometimes yeah. we do have something really important to to say, you know, that can kind of help that person in their healing. So being, so coming from non-attachment or kind of abiding in that, like holding the space, like it's also important we don't get stuck there and think that, oh, that's all I ever need to do, right? It's like, it's also responding when appropriate. And sometimes we step in in a more dynamic sort of active way. And they, and it goes, I mean, I think to be a really skilled psychedelic therapist, you do both, you have both, right? Yeah. You can be a sitter, right? And not have any therapy skills necessarily. And that can be helpful too. But to really be a psychedelic therapist, I think involves both, kind of yeah. bringing in both, both aspects. Yeah, you have that uh, foundation of compassionate abiding with the psychotherapeutic skills to guide someone through the process. Yeah, I remember when I was teaching an undergraduate uh, clinical psychology course, and we were I was demonstrating the different sort of major therapeutic approaches or philosophies, and we were talking about humanistic or Rogerian client-centered therapy, mm-hmm. and at its base, it's reflective listening, unconditional positive regard, but what it looks like to an untrained eye is is what well, you're just parroting back everything they're saying mm-hmm. are you, you're just like a hired friend uh how is that useful so <laughs> mm-hmm. you know good therapy is definitely more than just that but that is such an important and i think actually really difficult to do well skill yeah. for therapists yeah. so gentlemen anything else with respect to burnout um that you think our audience might benefit from hearing from us the uh, Tibetan loving kindness meditation we were talking about, uh, meta, where you start by sending yourself love, is a reminder to me in the burnout prevention to fill your own cup or work mm-hmm. on that resilience, that capacity, and check in with yourself through that self awareness often, so you can really uh, care bear stare it out to others. That's a good. Uh, hopefully I'll use these words right. That's a good hopelessness prophylactic. Like to self-love, it, if we, if you're in a pretty hopeless scenario because of you know lack of support, these of these external variables we've been talking about, um, at the very least, practicing self-love I think can uh, help build some resilience against what hopelessness can do to a person. Yeah, I think. I mean, just reflecting back on my own experience and working with people around burnout, I, I do think that that, that self-compassion, that, that unconditional self-acceptance um, is, is such a hard thing for people to um, embrace or be in touch with. Like we always, I mean, a lot of it, you know, we, we always kind of put ourselves last or we treat ourselves the worst. And we, yeah. and so that, yeah, that, that's really crucial. And the other thing that I think is just worth um, emphasizing again is like, no matter how good we are at self-care, how many tools we have, um, if we're in a work if we're on a team, if we're in a work environment that's not um, somehow like supportive or at least acknowledging that self-care is important, you know, um, it all those personal things we do like aren't necessarily going to protect us, you know, from burnout. Like, yeah, we need systems that that also are, um, and I think it's happening more and more. But um, I don't know. I I just. Uh, see what a lot of people are going through like especially with the pandemic and the and the impossible you know things that they're being asked to do and um it's uh it's a big challenge like how to you know how to prevent burnout and keep people out of that that red zone yeah the the self-regard self-acceptance self-love challenge for many of us westerners reminds me Hopefully I'll get the details right. I think that the Dalai Lama visited the West, and it was one of the things that he 
was just sort of baffled by was the level mm-hmm. of self-hatred and self-loathing that we're all plagued with. He just didn't have it in him, you know, didn't understand it. And uh, to me, that's really striking because it suggests that it's just, we don't have to think this way. Yeah. It's a function yeah, of I our conditioning. You know? Yeah. There's, it's, there's cultural like elements to it. There's conditioning right around this, like, you know, don't be selfish. Don't, you know, uh-huh. don't put yourself first. Like right. there's just a lot Work of ways hard. this gets ingrained, like I think in us and it may, and it can be really hard to, um, reverse or overcome. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of guilt, you know, that goes along with, uh, that self love <laughs> or trying to oh, take yeah. care of ourselves. Yeah. I had to make that shift, uh, when picking up a practice of, yoga meditation I felt this conditioning this um, part of me saying time spent doing that is selfish like I had to I had to uh, work with that for a while before I could really let it go or love it into the light because that was deeply ingrained yeah well you know I think the key to that is just um, owning it right like yeah it is selfish yeah and that's okay you know, yeah. put myself first sometimes. Yeah. And, and it's, I'm he, just as important, you know, like I'm a human being just like you and everybody else. Like I, you know, don't I deserve that same sort of compassion, love, you know, yeah. acceptance. It reminds me of uh, something our uh, colleague and friend uh, Adele LaFrance used to say when, when we'd work uh, together on some ketamine therapy projects is um, this concept of I love you, but I love me more. And uh, it was just a, a really clear-cut, powerful reminder mm-hmm. of, of that it's not selfish to love yourself, and it's actually quite important. Yeah, and I did a little personal spin on that in my head. Like, I love you, but I love me first. And for some reason, first just... I can tolerate that a little yeah, bit better yeah. than more. Like I'm still struggling with some of the, the, uh, internalized, uh, don't be selfish narrative. Yep. Um, <laughs> but yeah, man, when, when shame and guilt works its way in to our core, it's, it's super corrosive. I'm just spend the rest of my life trying to root that out. I think. Yeah. There's one other story that comes to mind that might be relevant. It might be a complete tangent, but uh, when the pandemic Every tangent is relevant, yeah, <laughs> tangents are relevant. Um, when the pandemic came along, um, I remember around that time reading or rereading the story from the '70s of the big uh, Mob Bell telephone company um, division. I don't know if you ever heard this story, but it's what is now AT and T. The antitrust laws, the government said, okay, this company of 26,000 employees has to split in two, you know, to Bell Telephone Company and whatever else. And that was interesting for this deeply ingrained culture of a workforce to be like, boom, you are cut in half. And because uh, some people um, kind of crashed and burned through that change and some people thrived and and navigate it quite well and the studies after looked at what are the traits of the people who did well like what are the resilience characteristics and they they identified three things one of it was consistency like those who just kept showing up like even if you're discouraged they kept showing up to work not in a burnout unrealistic way like you take your vacation time right and but uh but showing up like uh through the changes and then uh the second one was control or locus of control like those who focused on the things they could influence um ended up doing a lot better through the process and then the last thing i think was um okay it was uh it was another this is three c's and it was open to change so those who uh had that non-attachment like they could you know, go to a new office and they weren't attached to, oh no, this is the end of the world. Like my office or my colleagues changed and I'm never going to be happy. You're never going to get over that. Um, And so I like to remember those things in times of turmoil. I love it. 
Well, gentlemen, it's been an enlightening conversation. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Hey, I appreciate uh, yeah being invited. Thank yeah. you. We'll have to bring you back on for yeah. many more enlightening conversations. That. Yeah, thank you both. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us today. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This will help us get into the ears and faces of more people and help us put wind in the sails of the psychedelic medicine renaissance. Thanks for listening. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.